Welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But, you know, we've been with the Apostle Paul now for, for quite a while. And we've studied this slow enough to understand who he is and, and what he's trying to accomplish. And, and you might remember last week that we saw that, you know, where he'd been in, in ministry at Ephesus for over three years. And a huge riot occurred there at the end of, end of chapter 19, uh, as we like to divide them up in chapters. And this was, you know, pretty much immediately after this is chapter 20. I mean, in, in a timeline, you know, a huge riot is, is going on there. And a guy named uh, Demetrius, who sold silver idols in the city, his business was hurting because Paul was coming and, and, and you know, preaching the gospel, presenting Christ. And it was turning their world literally upside down. I had a conversation this last week with uh, uh, Pastor John Sayers in the, in the prison ministry, and we were talking about how the world just seems upside down. Right decisions that we would look at and say, well, this is the right decision. In the world's eyes, it would be a wrong decision. And wrong decisions that we would totally look at and say, why would somebody make that decision? That just seems so, so bad. That's just the wrong way to go. Well, the world sees that as a right decision. We live in an upside-down world. And Paul literally was turning the world uh, of Ephesus upside down, really for us, right side back up, because they were pointing out this is wrong. This type of idol worship is wrong. So it was hurting these guys' you know, business. Now, I've told you several stories from a friend of mine that's a pastor in uh, India, and he, he, and he travels, and uh, we'll, we'll, he would join the pastors in, in India. He, he's a pastor here, and he would go over there to India. And as he was there, and he'd be there, and they'd be uh, translating letters. And he was sitting down there, and one letter came in, and it talked about the, this, group of, uh, this group of pastors was, was asking for prayer for this one family. Because on their block... This one family became Christians, and they threw, literally, in India, everybody has idols. So in your house, you have all these different idols. They took their idols and threw them outside, out on the street. Okay, don't think of it like our curb streets and all that. We're talking about mud street. They just threw it out. So it's sitting out there in the mud. Well, another family comes up and says, whoa, 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 dude, why'd you throw your idols out? And they start talking to them about Christ. And soon enough, five families on this one street became Christians. And their idols are all thrown outside, sitting in the mud. Well, the reason why they're asking for prayers is because the whole town is not Christian. There's only five families that are Christian. And they all think these idols are sacred. And they're walking around these guys' homes, and the idols are out on the street, and they're not about to touch these idols because they're sacred. So what do you do? I mean, it's causing a major problem in the city. This is what Paul is up against. There are major problems because God is turning their world upside down. So we read the scriptures and we hear stuff about, you know, in India, and it starts to become a little bit relevant for us. And then we have to think in our own lives, what are our idols? Anything that is man-made, that is used to distract you from God, is an idol. So we look at it and go, okay, I'm kind of getting a sense of what an idol is. Now what do I do about it? What do the scriptures say? 
throw your idols out. Worship the one true God. So in Ephesus, this mob is stirred up, and it's really all about money. But, but Paul, you know, they, they all gathered into the stadium, 24,000 people. And literally, they had to talk Paul out of going into the stadium because he literally would have been torn apart. In fact, later on, they will martyr Christians in this particular stadium by sending in the wild animals after them. So they convinced Paul not to go, and, and, you know, but the Apostle Paul, you know, they had him uh, move on. And, and it says in, in verse 1 here, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent, his disciple, uh, Paul sent for his disciples and, after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through the area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. So, you know, he's got this ministry now where he's kind of like the elder statesman. He's been in Ephesus for a while, and he's traveled back over, and he's traveling around, going back to the places he's been, and encouraging them. When he arrives, it's a big deal for the churches. And it says here, because the Jews made a plot against him as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. What Paul is trying to do here is, and we'll learn this a little later on, is, He's trying to get to Passover in Jerusalem. So he's kind of, he, he, he's trying to hurry up here. He's going, guys, I love you, but I want to encourage you, but I got to go. So, you know, he, he, but he's wanting to get on the ship, but this plot had been made to kill him. So he doesn't go by ship. You know, he's wanting to charter a Grecian uh, uh, charter boat. Remember, he took a vowel and he shaved his head and, he, and he's holding on to the hair. We don't know what the vowel was, but, but he wants to make it back so we can uh, put that onto the altar of fire. He wants to fulfill that vow. You've got to remember, he is still Jewish. His Jewishness is still meaningful to him because it's an extension of who he is. He just understands the totality of what God is, and that includes Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Why does he want to get there you know, at Passover time? There are millions of Jews that he can talk to about Jesus. That's why he's wanting to go. He wants to preach to the Jews. However, the disciples discover this plot to kill him, so he goes a different route. And I think it's interesting that the Lord will start to see the Lord using other people's evil intentions for his good. He used this evil intention to get Paul where he wants him to be. Let's think about this a minute. We think, Lord, direct me. Lord, allow the circumstances in my life to, to, to work in your favor. But... At the same time, we don't think that somebody's evil desires are inclusive of that plan. Well, think of it like this. It's like your boss or your co-worker. co-worker they're, they're manipulating a situation. But the Lord uses that to his advantage in order to get you where you need to be. Why? Because we have called him Lord. He is in charge of our lives. So the Lord can use evil things... Evil things that they say or that they do to get you where you, he wants you to be in this life. It goes on here in verse 4 and it says, He was accomplished or accompanied by Sopater, son of uh, Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us, or waited, yeah, waited for us at Troas. So that's a great verse to uh, to memorize and to spout out all the time, over and over, because you'll be able to get every name right. But these guys, 
were there to help Paul. And it's so cool when you get your name put in the Bible, wouldn't it? I mean, I'd love to be in heaven and go, yeah, hey, yeah, my name's in the Bible. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of cool. But these guys, they're his ministry team. Paul is pouring himself out into other people. He's not getting any younger here. And all of a sudden he realizes, if I can just teach these guys, if I can put my time, energy, and effort into these men, then man, it'll be all worth it. Who is he emulating here? Who is Paul acting like here? He's acting like Jesus. Jesus did the same thing. And these guys want to be around him. He's mentoring them. Now, some of these guys are great. Now, we know the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He spoke many languages. He was, he was highly educated. He was raised as a Jew. And now he's like the foremost preacher of Christ and teacher of Christ. Now, he's traveling with Dr. Luke. When you ever, and from now on in Acts, when you hear the word us, well, they, we're, they were waiting for us. Luke is the one writing this. So, so we're talking about Dr. Luke. He was, he was a physician. Highly educated, and he's probably from Troas. So the conversation between these two guys, you know, had to be way above most of our heads. I mean, these guys were great. Now, we know that all the beatings that Paul got, that it was good to have a buddy as a doctor, right? I think the Lord's kind of providing there two different things. Good conversation and a doctor along the way. But then you got Sopater, the, the Berean. Now, we don't know anything about this guy other than he was a Berean. Or he's from Berea, and then we call him Bereans. And this is the guy who, who grabbed the scriptures and, okay, what, what did you say, Paul? And he looked at the scriptures and made sure what Paul was saying was what God was really intending for Paul to say. He was checking Paul, and that's a good thing to have. And then, then you have Aristarchus. Now, bear with me. There's like nine of these guys here uh, that we'll go through. But this guy, Aristarchus, he's from Thessalonica, and his, you know, his name, you know, with a name like Aristarchus, he was, he was part of the upper echelon of, of the town. The upper crust. He was rich. And we know that he was in prison with Paul several times. He might be even the guy that's funding the trip. Who knows? But then you have Secundus. And just like Aristarchus, his name kind of gives us an idea who he was. Secundus was a, was a slave. His name meant second. You know, like, hey, first, can you go do this? Hey, second. Slaves didn't have names back then. You didn't give him a name. You just, hey, first, second, hey, 25th, go do this. His name literally is second. He was a slave and he was from Thessalonica. Now think about this. What if he was, and we don't know, but what if he was the, formerly the, you know, Aristarchus' slave? It's kind of an interesting thought here. You got a slave and somebody from the upper echelon working along beside Paul and getting along in the ministry. This is great. But now he's a slave for Christ, traveling with the Apostle Paul, equal to the rest of the gang around. And it's so awesome. And it changed the world. No other religion is like this. And I hate to call, you know, belief in Christ a religion. But that's what the world calls it. But no other religion is like this. They're all based on hierarchy. A true, healthy church will reflect all the economics that they live around in. That didn't sound too, it sounded kind of weird up here in my head. But that they, you know, the town that they live in, they'll have all sorts of economics from the wealthy to the poor within the same church. You have a rich guy and you have a poor guy all worshiping the same God together and getting along. Then you have a guy named Gaius. Don't know a lot about him. But we do know that he became the bishop at Thessalonica. 
Later on, this guy really becomes somebody in the first century church. But right now, he's like one of these little kids. He's like one of you sitting around in the church. You're thinking, man, this, this kid just, I wish he'd straighten out his life. That's kind of like, guys, he's one of those little kids. He's the future for them. And then you have another future guy named Timothy. Now, we know a lot about Timothy because we read the books that are, that are you know, written to him and, and stuff. But we also you know, know that Paul had to tell him over and over, don't let anyone look down upon you because you were young. Let's get moving. Come on, Timothy, let's go. Timothy becomes the pastor at Ephesus. Then you have Tychicus. This is Paul's go-to guy for delivering the letters to everyone. He's probably some type, of, some type of athlete. He was like their Pony Express in a sense. He must have been a runner because we know that he delivered many of the letters, like the letters to the Colossians and, and the, the letter to the Ephesians. But right now, he's, you know, he's traveling with Paul. He's having a great time, but it's also a dangerous time. And then you have Trophimus. He's also from Ephesus. We'll read a little bit more about him in chapter 21. Is his presence literally creates a riot in Jerusalem. His name means trophy. So his mom and dad must have really loved him. This is our trophy. Or maybe he was a good athlete and he had tons of trophies and they just started calling him trophy. I don't know. But what a group of guys this is. It's a very, very strong group. And this was because the Holy Spirit allowed Paul to surround himself with great people. And he's pouring himself out into others. This is what we call discipleship. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a little while here. But let's go on to verse 6. We better get moving here. It says in verse 6, But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later he uh, joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking to midnight. Now you, th- you thought that I could talk a long time. This guy, Paul, be glad I'm not Paul. Now this time, you know... Uh, is the time that we see in the Bible where believers, you know, were, were starting to, to meet on Sunday. You know, there's a lot of people out there that say, oh, you can't meet on Sunday. That's not the true day to, to meet because you've got to meet on Saturday because that's the, the, the first day of the week, you know. And back then, that, that Saturday was the first day of the week. But here we see that, you know, these guys starting to meet on Sunday. And it really doesn't matter what day of the week that, that we meet. What really matters is that we meet. Paul wrote to the Colossians and the Romans and said, Stop arguing about this, guys. It's not important. It doesn't really matter. Paul even says, Every day is important. It's not what we do or when we meet that's important. We don't have to take the Old Testament law and and impose it on ourselves. We do have to, you you know, the Lord still wants us to take a certain day. And and we need to take the concept of rest and apply it to our lives. And choose a day where we actually take a a time to to set back. You know, once a week where, you know, some use Sundays and uh, some people use other days. But it doesn't really matter. But it's good and healthy and biblical for us. For us not to work one day a week. And when it says not to work, it doesn't mean that you can't do something else. Now, don't replace your regular work with something else you're working on. 
But we need to take this concept and implement it in our lives. If you like mowing the lawn, then you can mow the lawn on this day of rest. I know it sounds backwards, but the point is, don't be doing the same thing you do every day because you're going to wear yourself out. We have to rest. That means, hey, going to the coast and enjoying the family and go to the coast and enjoy the family. That means sitting down on the couch, sit down on the couch. But you need to rest one way or the other. We fill our lives so much with going and going and going that we never stop and talk about and talk with God. We never stop and actually rest. We need to be able to get out into nature and recognize God. So once a week we need to stop and relax. Verse 8, it says, There were many lamps in the upstairs room where, where we were meeting. And, you know, Paul really talks, you know, he, he's talking into the night here. He says, There's many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young, young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on and on and on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. I love this. Eutychus even gets his name in the Bible. Now, I'm sure in heaven, not that, I mean, I'm just imagining this, not that there's going to be lines in heaven to meet people, but Eutychus' line would be really short and Paul's line is going to be really long. And you're going to be like, your, your name's in the Bible somewhere, isn't it? And he's going to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're the guy that fell out the window. And he's going to go, yeah, yeah, I know, my name's in the Bible. He's sleeping in church, and he's not very good at it either. Some of us are good at it. You know, I, oh, I was just praying. When, when my, my first ever preaching gig, we had, a, we had a 94-year-old that would sit on the very end of the pew. And the pews kind of had high arms, and he'd have his arm up there, and he would cup it over his ear because he didn't like to wear his hearing aids. But he'd cup it over his ears and listen. Now, half the time, he'd be listening. The other half the time, you know what he'd be doing? Just sleeping away, leaning against his hand. It was awesome. He was 90. I wasn't going to say anything. He's 94. I mean, he's in church. I'm not going to complain. But this guy, he just fell right over out the window. Then he nailed the ground. It says in verse 10, Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs and broke bread and ate. So, I mean, Paul brought him back to life. Or I mean, the Holy, through the Holy Spirit, the guy was dead, and now he's alive. It says here, after talking until daylight, he left. Paul just kept talking on and on. So I think you'll get out of here about 8 o'clock tonight, maybe. No, I'm joking. We went, we went on ahead to the ship and sailed from Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, he took us, he took him, we took him aboard and went on to uh, another town. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. The next day we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and followed the following day to Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost by, from Miletus. Uh, Paul sent uh, to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, basically what's going on here is, is you know, Paul is, is, 
is wanting to see these guys, but he's not wanting to get stopped uh, for a long time. So he just sends for the elders. You know, he's, he's sitting there going, I've given myself to you guys for three years, and I'm going to be leaving, and, and, and you guys might not ever see me again. This is what he's saying to them. It goes on and says, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came to you in the province of Asia. I love this statement. You know how I lived. His leadership is not something that he just turned on and off. He didn't leave the leadership at church. He didn't go to Costco and turn it off, and then when he arrived back at church, turn it back on. He knew that he would run into to people, and he accepted that. What a model of godliness this is for our world, that we not turn off our Christianity when we leave this building. We not turn off our Christianity when we step out of our household, or for that matter, when we step into our household. It is who we are. You know, I've been thinking a lot lot about going to church versus belonging to church. We need to belong to church. It needs to be a part of who we are, not just something we do. Not just something, oh, well, yeah, I go to church. We need to belong. We need to put our time, effort, and energy into, into each other. It goes on here in verse 19, it says, I serve the Lord with great humility. Isn't it funny how the Apostle Paul has to tell tell them this? He is saying that one of my greatest traits is humility. It's kind of weird for a guy to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm great at humility. Apostle Paul is so in touch with himself that he could say this objectively. What is humility? Humility is truly knowing who you are in the grand scheme of things. You don't act more and you don't act less than who you are. And you're just getting the job done. That's what Paul's doing. He goes, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears. Although a Severely, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you and have taught you publicly from house to house. Man, there's so much here. Go back and look at it later. You know, it would have been easier. It would have been an easier trip, Paul is saying. If I didn't have, you know, if I, I didn't have to bring Jesus to you. Man, I could have taken a vacation here. He is going through incredible country that people spend thousands of dollars just to go visit and see and take pictures of. But he's not doing that. I didn't do that for you guys, he's saying. I did it because the Lord compelled me to to come to you and to speak to you about him. He says in verse 21, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. He doesn't know what will happen to him. But he is spiritually discerning that his life is not going to be easy from this point forward. The Holy Spirit is actually telling him trouble is ahead. And he's still doing it. Now, how many of us, if we were told, hey, this is going to be really hard this next week, how many of us would elect to go on vacation? Get out of here. I'm gone. Now, I don't say that because I'm actually going on vacation this next week. 
But I mean, if we were told, hey, you, this week is going to be bad, we were probably like hiding our homes. But Paul's sitting there going, the Holy Spirit is compelling me, and I know that it's going to be hard. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I'm going for it. Verse 24 says, however, I consider, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, and the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, if that's not a mission statement, what a mission statement is, I don't know what a, what a mission statement would be. That is an awesome statement. I'm not just going to survive. I'm going to finish here. I want to complete it. Paul is in the trenches, and he's going to complete it. Paul will say in two, different, two or three different ways here, I have a task that was given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ, and ministering as unto the Lord Jesus what is he saying here? He is telling these guys, I don't work for you. He's telling these guys, I don't need your approval. He's telling these guys, you know what? It's nice that you look up to me. But even if, I, even if you didn't, I would serve you anyway because I'm serving as unto the Lord. You know what? When we serve, we should be serving unto, as unto the Lord. When we serve that way, we don't burn out in ministry. We don't burn out in service to the Lord when we serve unto Him. When we serve, you're serving the Lord. When you're teaching the little kids, instead of being in service, you're serving the Lord. When you're taking care of our babies, and believe me, it can make for a long day, especially if my son's in there. He's one of these kids that he wants to play all the time, and not just play. He wants to play with you. You've got to be right there to play with him. And I love it. But man, it can be tiring. When we serve the Lord, we're ser- when we serve them, you know, when we're taking care of the babies, we're serving unto the Lord. You're not serving the moms and the dads who forget to thank you sometimes. And we need to be thanked. If you're serving them, you'll just burn yourself out. You will need breaks from that service, but you won't bring, you know, you won't burn out and become bitter. Like so many people have come from so many different churches. You know, usually what happens is we burn out and then we go find another church and, and we never serve. Well, why is that? Well, because we've been, you know, we feel like we've been used and abused. And maybe they should have appreciated you more. But get something straight. You're serving the Lord and not them. That's the important thing. We've got to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I'm going to serve the Lord. What gifts has the Lord given me? What abilities has the Lord given me, and where should I use them? Then when we feel like we want to whine about something, we go to the Lord and say, Lord, are you putting this on my heart, or am I just being a whiner today? And the Lord will tell you, hey, you're just being a whiner, or he'll say, you know what, no, I, I, there's something odd here. I want you to go talk to so-and-so, or I want you to do something about it. But we go to him first. We have got to serve him and him alone. He goes on and says, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. I'm going away, guys. You're not ever going to see me again. He's saying goodbye to them. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of all blood of all men, of the blood of all men. He is saying, I have done the job the Lord has given me. Every day I've been out there preaching and teaching about Jesus. Every day I've been out there sharing about Jesus. I've done what the Lord wants me to do. 
For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock. I've taught you the word, and you need to do two things. Watch yourself first, and then watch over each other. Paul's telling them that. Watch yourself first, and then watch over each other, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, we automatically think of the church here, but we also have to extend this out to our own families. Who is the, you know, who is the flock in our, uh, you know, who is our flock? Our families are our flock. But also apply this to, to you know, school teachers. Who is your flock? The kids that are in your classroom is your flock. Managers, who is your flock? If you're in any type of authority at all, who is your flock? The Lord has put you as an overseer. That is who God has called you to shepherd, to influence. Now, I mean, we do live in a world that says, well, you can't talk about certain things at certain times. You've got to, you know, work within those parameters. But we also have the First Amendment where we can talk about our faith and what Jesus means to us. We can influence people over time in those situations. God will and can call you to shepherd whatever flock He has given you. He says, be shepherds of the church of God. Not to entertain them, Not to babysit them, not to coddle them, not to lord it over them, but to shepherd them. This is a very soft word. It is much more about protection and guidance and putting the sheep into safe pastures. Be shepherds of the church of God, which which he bought with his own blood. It's so important for us to remember who... The church of God is. And how they got to be the church. Who purchased them? Who bought them? And what it cost. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. What do, uh, you know, what do, what do modern savage wolves look like? How about relational wolves? You know, not every... Relationship in the church is a, you know, is a safe relationship. That's sad, but true. Watch out. You've got you to guide your relationships toward Christ. Now, relational wolves in the world is something else. People will eat you alive if you don't watch it. But we rely on Christ to guide us. How about doctrinal wolves? I know your pastor, you know, as, as your pastor, you know, the, I, I try to teach the Word of God. I try to doctrinally be straight on. I, you know, if, and if I find out, man, I taught this wrong, I come back and I say, hey, you know what, I, th- this was my understanding, and now I've changed my view on that, and this is why. Here's what it says biblically. But I know a lot of people will come to you and say, well, I know your pastor really taught you that, but what, what it really means... You've got to watch it. You've got to compare that stuff to the Scripture. You've got to be careful. Because if it's not right, man, it'll, it'll, it'll take you off. How about the troublemaking wolves? You know, those that love to stir the pot up. Oh, it's just a prayer request. Not gossip, just a prayer request. Or how about the woes that are really negative? Well, I do everything. No one else does anything. 
When we allow this type of talk in the church, it just kills us. Then it says, verse 30, Even from our own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I've never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And they're like, you're so right, Paul. Don't leave us. No one could ever replace us. And Paul's saying to them, you know what, guys? Yeah, you can't replace me because you're not replacing me. The Holy Spirit is still here. You guys are in, tra- you guys are in charge now. That's what Paul's telling them. Verse 32, he says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of, of His grace, which can build you up and give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. He is saying, I have worked hard among you. I have not taken anything from you. And in his particular case, he's basically saying, I haven't taken a dime from you. I've worked for it. He goes on and says, remembering the words... Remembering the words that Lord Jesus Christ himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was the statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. What a blessing and a tough goodbye for them. You know what Paul did here? It's what we should be doing. It's investing himself in other people. Everything else is a waste, Paul saying. I invested myself through Jesus Christ into your lives. Yes, we have to make a living. And yes, we need to enjoy life. But the kingdom of God is so much more than what we eat, what we put on our table, or where we live. As the kingdom of God, we are a family, and we have to invest ourselves in each other. And as we do, we start to discover things about our life and about the life of God and about how those two things come together that we would never discover if we'd live selfishly. See, the world is telling us, you need to live selfishly. You need to take care of yourself. You need to only look at you, your little unit, your little family, and you worry about that. And God is telling us, let's look out for each other. Look at yourself in the mirror. Make sure you're right. And then look at each other and help each other along the way. That's what he's saying here. Don't live selfishly. That's what the world says. I rebuke that teaching. Do not live selfishly. Allow the Bible to direct you. Allow the Holy Spirit to to give you that joy in life to put into other people. And you will have joy like you've never had before. Because selfishness brings loneliness every time. Live for others and you will see that as you serve unto the Lord, if you serve the Lord, then He will bless you beyond measure in your life. That blessing comes in multiple ways. I'm not talking about financial blessing. I'm talking about relationships that will last an eternity because you'll be with them in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Paul's example of just investing his time, energy, and effort into people's lives. 
that as he invested himself into a relationship with you, he figured out what he needed to be doing in life. And he did it to his full ability. He did it to the, 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 you know, to the nth degree of everything that you, his very being, the way you made him. He was able to take that and implement that into other people's lives. He gave his, he gave his all. Because he served you, Lord. He didn't serve man. And I pray that we look at, the, you know, look at Paul's life and we emulate that because it emulates Jesus. As you invested into your 12 disciples, may we invest into those around us. And may our relationships grow to be true and wonderful. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. May He bless the relationships that you have. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.